The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Well, if you would open up your copy of God's Word to James chapter 1. James comes right after the book of Hebrews. As Sir Doug said, it's a good question that's up here on the screen. How can we rejoice in trials? At some point in our life, we're going to face trials. We're going to face great difficulties. Others are going to face certain difficulties that others don't have. But every single one of us is going to go through trials. And it's going through trials even now. What does the Word of God have to say? Well, we're looking at James 1, verses 2 through 12 today as our passage. <laughs> James 1, verses 2 through 12. Let's hear now the Word of God. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, you will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word that you would illumine this text by the power of your spirit. You would give us great help from your throne in heaven to make this text come alive to us. It indeed is the living voice of God. But by your Spirit, would you help us to see that? Would you show us great and unsearchable and wonderful things in your Word? Would you help it to be applied to our hearts? Be with both speaker and hearer by the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when you go through a trial, a really difficult time, what are some words that come to mind? Describe that trial. Sure, difficult, hard, excruciating, painful, sad, sorrowful, heart wrenching, troubling, overwhelming, sickening. But with the word joy come to your mind, I've been thinking of going through difficulties. Well, this is the one word that James uses to describe trials. He says, count it all joy when you face trials of any kind. But how in the world can James say this? 
Did James ever live a day in his life? And did he live in a cave where he was sheltered from all difficulties? It sounds like that only somebody who's never experienced difficulties can say such a thing. So how can he say such a thing? Well, thankfully, James does not end at verse 2. We need to keep reading. James goes on to say in verse 3, knowing, or for you know. There's some things that you have to know if you're going to count trials with joy. And so we're going to look at those things that James tells us to know. And the things we need to keep in mind and remember when we are faced with trial so we can count it all joy. And we're going to see three reminders when faced with trials. The first is there is a purpose. The second is there is wisdom. And the third is there is an end. So the first reminder is there is a purpose. James tells us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Now before he gets into uh, the purpose, we need to consider first what is a trial? Well, I like to define trial as providential pressure. It's pressure in that it's a difficulty. It's the circumstances and the people that, that weigh in on us, that, that squeeze us. I like to think of it as our hearts getting squeezed. It's that pressure that gets applied to us, that makes things difficult on us. It's providential because the Lord is sovereign over it all. No matter what happens, the Lord is ordaining whatsoever comes uh, to pass. He's orchestrating everything in His providence. Uh, evil men are still responsible for their sin. They will be called to account by God. Yet God works even through sinful men and these evil circumstances for a good purpose in our life. And He says trials of various kinds. In other words, there's no qualifiers it doesn't need to be a big disaster. It can even be something small. It's usually the small things that get us. Now, I, I, what, I, what I don't want us to get away from this is that if you are in danger, you can't be safe. That's not what I want, want us to get out of this. Okay, That's not what James is saying. It really, in my opinion, it goes without saying, but the world we live in, sometimes people will say, go back to your dangerous situation and just do a better job. You have every right to be safe. You have every right to get out of danger. And just because we're going through a difficult trial doesn't mean that we can't seek relief from it. Okay, so, so those are some of the caveats. That if you're in a dangerous situation, you have every right to, to get out of it and be safe and to seek help in that. But even getting out of that danger, there's still some difficulty that remains. And so... How are we to think of it? Well, how are we to count or consider anything trial-related joy? Well, first, James says there is a purpose. God has a sovereign purpose in the trial. It's not some wasted trial that's just some bad circumstance that will have no good that will come out of it. No, our God is more powerful than that. God has a sovereign purpose in it. Look at verse 3. It says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, this is better translated as while knowing. And so James is telling us this is something you need to know. This is how you consider it joy, by knowing these things. And notice what James calls a trial. He calls it the testing of our faith. Now, this is not testing as in, let's see if you pass. Oh, that's a C minus. 
next trial, hopefully you do a better job. I'm watching you. Uh, rather, this is testing in the sense of how metals were tested back then, how gold was tested. It was the heat that was applied to those precious metals that would draw out those imperfections and dross, those impurities in it. The, the testing was the heat specifically geared to draw that stuff out to purify the metals. And that's what James has in mind here. And that's what the trial is. The trial or the testing of your faith gives the occasion to produce steadfastness. Well, steadfastness means to remain steady, to keep going under pressure. We translate it as endurance or perseverance. And steadfastness only happens when what? When things are difficult, right? If I'm sitting on the couch eating my favorite snack and beverage, I typically don't need to persevere in that. I typically need to find a way to get off the couch and uh, not remain in that. Steadfastness assumes difficulty. It's the you're walking uphill with a heavy pack and you feel and you don't feel like going on. That is steadfastness. It's to keep going on when things are difficult. And this is how we become physically stronger and more fit. Right? You want to get physically fit? You need steadfastness. You need a trial. It's called exercise. Well, how do we get spiritually fit in respect of our faith? How do we become more spiritually fit? Well, we need an occasion for steadfastness and for endurance. And what produces that? The trial, this providential pressure, just like the heavy weights or the treadmill gives you that occasion for physical endurance, this is what the trial does for us spiritually. Trials are the tools God uses to grow us spiritually. It's God taking us to the gym to condition us, except He schedules the gym day and we can't skip it. Uh, this is the purpose of the trial, as James goes on to say in verse 4. He goes, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So with physical exercise, you need to endure. You need to remain steadfast on that treadmill or lifting those weights in order to increase in physical fitness. So with spiritual growth, you need to remain steadfast, endure while under providential pressure. As you remain steadfast under trial, you mature. You increase in faith. Your reliance and dependence upon God. And this is, what, this is why God brings trials to us. It's so that we can depend upon Him in ways we wouldn't, would it not be for the trial. Think of a Spurgeon who says, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock eternal." There's something that only, this is something only that believers get to experience. But it's something precious to grow in your knowledge of God, to grow in your love for God, to draw closer to Him when things get difficult. Our trials have a purpose. And the purpose pertains to things eternal and not things temporal. It pertains to growing in our love and knowledge of God, which is more precious than anything else. Because everything in this world is going to be stripped from us. But the thing that's going to remain is going to be our faith, our knowledge, 
our love of God. I guess First Corinthians says, you know, faith will cease when faith becomes sight. But our our knowledge of God, our relationship with God, our love uh, for God, and God's love for us, those are the things that are going to remain. And this is what God wants to build in us. He wants to strengthen us spiritually, even as we are wasting away uh, in this body. Because no matter what's going to happen, no matter what happens in this life, we're going to waste away. We're going to die someday. But God is at work in us to strengthen us and to, to grow us. The Apostle Paul understood this when he went through his difficulties in ministry. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul understood that the trials he experienced had a divine purpose. It wasn't a waste. And that purpose was so that he would rely not on himself, but on God all the more. Trials bring us beyond our ability to handle so that we humbly draw near to God. And in that drawing near to God, we find something very precious and special. We find greater delight and joy in knowing our God. The purpose, as James says, is so that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, we know on this side of heaven, we won't reach that goal, but that doesn't mean that God lowers the standard. This means that we will always experience trials, the final trial being death. So when faced with trials, we remember that there is a purpose. There's a good purpose. There's always a good purpose with God. And that is growing us spiritually, growing us in our knowledge of God. The second thing we need to know in order to count it all joy when faced with trials is that there is wisdom. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, at first, it seems like James is switching topics, kind of like he's jumping around. He's talking about trials, and now he's talking about wisdom. It's kind of like the book of Proverbs. But that's actually not what he's doing here. He's still talking about trials, because in verse 12, he's still talking about trials. And so sandwiched between verses 2 through 4 and verse 12 is this talk about wisdom. So that's in the context of trials. Uh, furthermore, there's a connection with the word lack. In verse 4, it says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 5, but if any of you lacks. And so that makes the connection here between trials and wisdom. Now, we need to understand what James means by wisdom. Uh, we usually think of wisdom as knowing how to handle a particular situation, a kind of decision making, kind of puts in that category of decision making. And that's part of it. Uh, if you don't know what to do when a trial comes, when a difficulty comes, how do I proceed? How do I handle it? It's usually when we need wisdom, God promises to give it to you if you ask. But wisdom is much more than just decision making. Wisdom is much more than how do I make the right decision in this situation? Wisdom is deeper and broader and wider than that. And we see that in the book of James. If you look over at James 3.13, he asks this question, 
Who is wise in understanding among you? Now, I think that we have a propensity to think, well, I'm wise. I'm the all-wise one. I need to figure everything out. Everyone is out to trick me. I can figure it out. Well, that's not a wise person. That's actually a fool. Um, what James says uh, wisdom looks like is by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So how do you know you have wisdom? How is wisdom manifested? Well, it's not making the best decision, but it's more than that. It's showing so by your conduct. What does your life look like? What does your life look like when you are put under trial? Uh, what would people say about you when you're at work? What would they say about your character? Would they describe you as somebody who has meekness and humility? Someone who's gentle? Someone who's kind? Or would they describe you as someone who's arrogant? Somebody who is harsh? Wisdom is manifested by meekness and humility. It's manifested by good conduct. As Jesus said, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So not necessarily or only decision-making, but by deeds, by conduct. And then you see the opposite of having wisdom there in James 3, verses 14 through 16, is to have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Not even if it's necessarily manifested, but if you have it in your hearts. If you have bitterness in your heart, if you have selfishness in your heart, uh, that leads to every vile practice. That shows a lack of wisdom. But what does it look like to have wisdom? Well, verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So this is what wisdom looks like. This is how wisdom is manifested. In deeds and not necessarily decision making. So if you lack wisdom, it means you're lacking these things. This is how you know you lack wisdom by your behavior. And what tends to bring out the fact that we lack wisdom? It's trials. It's difficulties. When things are going our way, and I'm getting everything I want, I could be a pretty good person. I can be pretty nice. But it's when I don't get my way. Oh, that's the real test. And met people like this. I think uh, I saw Pastor Briggs post something um, about the pastoral ministry. People love you until you don't give them what they want. And then they turn on you. And so it's the trials, it's the difficulty that then reveal what kind of person that is. And so when we face the trials, when we face the difficulties, when our hearts are squeezed and what comes out, that reveals our lack of wisdom. It's not the trials that put the lack of wisdom in the heart. It was already there. It's just that the trial brought it out. So, what happens when you lack wisdom? What happens when the trial reveals that you're a fool? Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So if you lack wisdom, that is if you lack 
purity, peaceableness, mercy, sincerity, presence of selfishness, bitterness, jealousy, impatience, whatever other evil and foolish thing there is. If you lack that, ask God. And He gives generously to all. And this is contrary to the way we think. When we see sin or demonic wisdom in our life, uh, we usually want to hide from God. Or the way we tend to handle it is we beat ourselves up and we condemn ourselves. Man, I just really blew it. I am not righteous. I am a fool. Why do I keep doing this? Why don't I act better than this? I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to beat myself up and condemn myself for my lack of righteousness. I'm certainly not going to go to God. Why would God give me anything? I mean, look at how, how I'm acting. The trial reveals that. I should not expect to receive anything from God except for God's law. This is how you did wrong. Feel ashamed. And this is what you need to do right. Do better next time. And if you intensify it, then, then I'll really get my act together. Repent. Yeah. Ugh. Get that intensity in there, and then, oh, I'll, I'll shape up. Take this more seriously. But this is a works righteousness religion, a thinking that we can only approach God when we have good behavior or that He only gives us the law. When the providential pressure brings out our sin in our lives, the answer is not to run from God, the answer is to run to God. Notice the graciousness of God. He invites those who lack wisdom. That is fools to ask him, and he gives it freely, generously, without reproach. He doesn't say, you're such a fool, why would I give you anything? Shape up and then maybe I'll consider it. Rather, he says, here you go in abundance. He gives wisdom to fools. And does not God's dealing with us in the gospel teach us this? If he freely gave us wisdom incarnate while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, God gave up his only begotten son for us. Then will he not also with them freely give us all things? Give us wisdom. Give us wisdom to us who are acting like fools. You see, it's at that moment when we feel most condemned. When the trial brings out our foolishness that we can approach Him with confidence. And He will give wisdom generously. The wisdom from above. And knowing this makes the difference between asking in faith without doubting being a double-minded and unstable man. Now, James is not suggesting here that we have perfect faith, but a, but a genuine and true faith. It's knowing the God who is gracious and generous. God gives wisdom to fools. He gave wisdom incarnate to enemies. He will give wisdom to me. So first, we know that there is a purpose. Second, we know that there is wisdom. Lastly and thirdly, we know there's an end. Verses 9-12 through 12 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. 
so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God promised to those who love him. So this is what James is doing here. He's calling us to remain steadfast under trial. He's, setting, he's doing this by setting before us two diametrically opposed men and focusing on their ends. Okay, Focusing on their end. We have the lowly brother and we have the rich man. Now lowly or humble, as some translations put it, focuses not necessarily on their humble state of mind, but on their circumstances. They're going through a really difficult time. Things are not well for them. We see that in the the letter of James here, that these Christians were going through a really hard time. And then we have the rich. The rich man is not necessarily defined by his assets or monetary value, but by his character. That is what his life is about. Verse 11 speaks of him dying in the midst of his pursuits. It's what he pursues. It's what he lives for. It's what drives him. So it's not his purse but his pursuits. It's not what's in his wallet, but what's in his heart. You can have little in your bank account, but still be a lover of this world and money and pursue it. Now, for the the sake of effect, James brings out the ironic reversal with a sarcastic tone in order to draw our attention. He says the lowly brothers to boast or glory or rejoice in is exaltation. That is his high position. And You look at this and you go, well, how in the world can he rejoice in his high position when he's so lowly? But then you read the rich man, he's to boast or glory in his humiliation. And this is ironic because who's going to rejoice in his humiliation? Uh, Furthermore, how is the rich person in humiliation? How is it that somebody who is in a lowly circumstance, somebody who's going through a really hard time, can rejoice in a high position, while somebody who has it all rejoices in humiliation when they don't feel very humbled at the moment. Well, it only makes sense when you consider this, their end. Looking at the present realities we can see by sight, it makes no sense. But if we see by faith the respective ends, then what James is saying makes sense. The rich man's end is considered in verses 10 through 11, and the lowly brother's end is considered in verse 12. Verses 10 through 11, it says he fades away, the the rich man, like the grass of the field. He dies in the midst of his pursuit. He is still pursuing these things when he dies. He never turned from loving this world. But whereas the rich man dies in the midst of his pursuits and is brought very low, This is not the case for the lowly brother, for the believer in Christ. His high position is described in verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So in contrast to the rich man who fades away and lives for this world, he can have it all. He can have all the wealth and health there is. He's going to perish. But what about the believer who's going through a really hard time, doesn't have good health, doesn't have wealth, doesn't have the things of this world? He's going to receive the crown of life. 
Now this is not a literal crown as if a crown could be made out of material called life. But this is figuratively for receiving eternal life. The parallel in James 2.5 is helpful in interpreting this. Where James says, listen my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So in 2.5, it is the kingdom promised to those who love him. The same group is described in 1.12, those who love him, and to them is promised the crown of life. So you combine those two, crown of life refers to this eternal kingdom, eternal life, the, the afterlife. James is encouraging steadfast by informing us what lies ahead for us. You can have this whole world, but it's all going to fade away. It's all going to pass away. But there's a crown of life coming for those who love God. Now this does not mean that James is teaching we're saved by our efforts or by loving God. We need to keep the rest of Scripture in mind when interpreting one verse. For those in Sunday school, that's called the analogy of faith. We also need to remember that if anyone loves God, it's because he first loved them. 1 John 4.19 God gives us a new heart. He gives us faith and gives us repentance. But James is speaking from a different angle, from the perspective of this current life and pointing to the end in order to encourage steadfastness. And it is only those who have faith in God's promises of what lies ahead who remain steadfast. If you put your hope in this world, you're not going to remain steadfast because anything in this world you have can be taken from you like that. But the crown of life can't be taken from you. That everlasting kingdom lies ahead for you. And that, He gives it on the basis of grace and not works or merit. Secured by Christ's perfect work and fulfilling all righteousness and paying for our sins gives us confidence that we will receive it. That He will persevere us till the end. This is why we can endure the trials of this life waiting for the end. This is why James is bringing this up. Because it is by setting our hope on what lies ahead that encourages us the trials in the here and now And that in the midst of the trials, while our bodies are outwardly wasting away, God is renewing our eternal spirits within. Making us healthier, shaping us into the image of Christ. This is what got Paul through. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so as you go through trials, remember, there is a purpose. God is sanctifying us. Second, there is wisdom. If you lack it, in any sense, God will pour it out on you freely, without reproach. And third, there is an end. And the end is eternal happiness in the presence of God, which He has promised to those who love Him. And those who love Him, love Him because He first loved them. So that should give us great insurance. And so as we go through trials, while we may legitimately grieve, 
May we keep our eyes fixed on what is seen. Or rather, may we fix our eyes on the things that are unseen and not on the things that are seen. For what is seen, the trials, the difficulties, this world are temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, help us to fix our eyes on the world to come. Knowing that you have promised us really great things. In this life we will have trouble. But take heart. Lord Jesus has overcome this world. And so we ask you would help us. and Fix our eyes on you. Trusting you in all trials. Knowing that there is a purpose that you will bring us through. Knowing that ultimately you will bring us home to, our, to that eternal kingdom. Which you have promised. And you who promised our faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.